We're going to read today from Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse number 5. And I understand that for many of you who weren't with us last Lord's Day, we're entering into a middle section or the middle of a section, which might demand some explanation. And I can only assure you that we'll try to make that clear as we study it together. But let's pick up our reading in verse number 5 and we'll read down through verse number 14. Listen now to the words of God. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. These are the words of God for our consideration this morning. Let's ask for his grace and wisdom as we study them. Father, thank you for the promises that accompany our interaction with your word. You have declared to us that this is, in fact, a living and breathing book that goes where no other book goes, that discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, that divides and pierces into the places where nothing else reaches. You have told us that this word never comes back without accomplishing exactly what you've intended for it to accomplish. You've told us that this word is is breathed out by you. And that because of your inspiring work, it is profitable for our consideration this morning. You've told us it's sufficient. It's all that we need for life and godliness. And we confess that you have communicated clearly that it is an authority. It is the authority for us as your people. And so we come grateful for what has been revealed and what has been promised of your word. And we bow before you asking that you would accomplish your purposes through our interaction with your word this morning. Father, may we decrease in this moment that Christ might increase in us. May we live in the crucified reality of our existence with Christ, being humbled 
to the point of desperation. May we continue to grow before Your Word and in Your Word this morning into the likeness of our Savior. May we reflect Him as we leave here because we've, we've studied together. We've, we've had collective time in Your Word. We are accountable to one another for the responsibility that, that rests upon us because we've been in Your Word. May, may You do these things. May You impress these upon us. Father, we want to be convicted where sin is going unchecked. We want our conscience to be informed by Your Word so that it, it alarms us when sin is present. We want to live as kingdom citizens who, who live joyfully under the leadership and the rulership of our King. So may this morning be a mark of discipleship in us. May we learn to observe all that He's commanded us through our time together in Your Word. Father, I need help from You. Strength. Clarity. A decreasing that would make this preaching time simply a channel for You to communicate. A vessel that delivers Your Word. Rightly cut. So I ask for grace. I ask for grace for those who are receiving your word. That they would be expository listeners. That they would listen with an eye to the text. That they would discern how the Spirit intends to shape and mold them with Matthew chapter 18. Father, I pray that for all of us, we would leave here not under some deceptive assumption that we've grown because we've opened our Bibles but that we would go pursuing obedience as doers of your word. So we commit this time to you. And we do so in total dependence upon you. We need grace, wisdom, mercy from you for this hour. So we ask for it in the name of our Savior, the one who has made all of your grace available to us. We ask in his name. Amen. For most of us, as we've studied through Matthew, he's stood as something of a beacon in the night of clarity for us. That discipleship, that following Christ, that whatever claim we make of being Christ people is directly connected to the life that we live. It's an unavoidable reality in Matthew's record that those who would claim to be followers of Christ are defined and can be recognized by the lives they live under Christ. We didn't get five chapters into Matthew. As Matthew recorded, reason after reason after reason that we should submit to Jesus as the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament promised. We got to the fifth chapter and we went to the mountainside and we heard the preaching of Jesus in the sermon it is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And there we found that Jesus, the king of his kingdom, had very clear expectations for those who would be the kingdom people. We are well acquainted at this point in Matthew chapter 18 with the reality that the kingdom of Christ is the domain of Christ. It's, it's where he rules. So to to profess that we are a part of that means that we are under His rulership. And we therefore think differently. We 
talk differently. We walk differently. Our lives are affected by the gospel. The gospel brought us under our King Jesus. And we joyfully live in submission under His authority. Those who will be the subjects of the King will be His subjects both by confession and application of the gospel. And Matthew's made this, in some places, for many of us, painfully clear. As we've held up the mirror of the Word of God and seen what a disciple of Christ looks like in contrast to our own existence as God's people. There's no distinction in Matthew or in the whole of your Scriptures from cover to cover between your faith and your practice. Those two are linked permanently. There is one saving faith. And James tells us that saving faith is living faith. It's obedient faith. So faith that is the starting place of a relationship with Christ is always then proven by the fruit that it bears. Always. Belief and obedience are two sides of the coin of discipleship or kingdom citizenship. We both believe certain things and because we believe them, we then live differently because of them. So if there is some movement and there is a massive movement within our culture and even within our Christian subculture, if you will, that says that we can profess to be followers of Christ, but we can live as if we're followers of the enemy. If there is some movement that says that there is a formula that gets you fire insurance and keeps you from hell, but demands nothing of radical life-altering change in your life, such a system and such a teaching is from Satan himself to deceive those who might buy into such a lie. Consider themselves saved and find on the day of judgment what we read and studied in Matthew 7 when they say, Lord, Lord, Master, Master, we did this and that. And he says, I never knew you. This morning we come to yet another text that makes evident the connection between our profession and our practice, between our confession and our obedience. Children of God are marked by faith. We found this in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, as we saw the disciples battling for faith in their failure to cast out the demon. Jesus highlighting not the quantity of their faith, but the quality, the clarity with which they looked at the object of their faith, that being himself. Yes, we're identified by our faith in Christ. And yes, we as kingdom citizens are to be marked and are marked by humility in the face of God's glory. And we saw this at the conclusion of chapter 17 and into the first four verses of chapter 18. As the humility of the king is expected in the people who follow the king. And so humble King Jesus leads a humble kingdom people. In fact, Jesus is so explicit about humility being a mark of the believer, of the true follower of Christ, that he answers the question of the disciples of who would be greatest in the kingdom by saying, before we talk about who's greatest, let's talk about who's in the kingdom. And who's in the kingdom is represented by a child. 
Jesus brings a child from the home into the middle of the room and he holds up this living illustration of humble desperation and dependence and says, unless you turn from the way you live now and become like this child in your humility and dependence, you're not going to be in the kingdom. And greatness in the kingdom is the ever-growing humility of the disciples of Christ. So it is sanctification, as we discussed yesterday at Titus 2 in our table discussion. Sanctification is the process of becoming what we are. We are marked by humility at the front end of our conversion, where we are brought to the end of ourselves. Matthew 5, 3 says we are bankrupt, we are destitute, we're dependent. And sanctification is the putting on of that humility until the culmination in glorification where we'll see Him and be like Him. Sin's presence will be forever removed even as its power has already been removed for us as followers of Christ. So truly, faith and humility are marks of the people of the kingdom. But those are internal qualities and they can be and they are measured by external realities. So internal qualities are measured on the outside. They are seen. There is, there is a test ground. There is a proof in the pudding. There is fruit on the tree that distinguishes what is going on in the root system of that tree. And so what Jesus does in this portion as we move into this final section of teaching from Jesus... And as we glean wisdom from heaven by hearing him carefully and by watching him carefully, what Jesus does in these verses, beginning in verse number five and carrying us through chapter 18, is he outlines for us how we live then and respond to others as those who are true children of the kingdom. So if we're going to put an overarching theme on this portion, especially verses five through 14, which we read this morning, it would be this. A professing believer's relationship to Christ's people is evidence of his or her relationship to Christ. Did you catch that? Your relationship as a follower of Christ to the people of Christ is in direct connection and proves your relationship to Christ. Jesus uses shocking pictures for us and shocking words for us to drive home this simple reality. A professing believer's relationship to the people of Christ is evidence of his or her relationship to Christ. Now this morning we're only going to study verses 5 and 6. We're only going to examine these first two verses of this theme. Because in these two verses we find more than enough For us to consider as we examine our own lives even before remembering the cross that has done the work on our behalf. So we're going to study these verses with that theme in mind that our relationship to the people of Christ as professing followers of Christ is directly connected to the evidence of whether or not we have a relationship with Christ. My goal this morning is quite simple. I want to give you, and I want to make this painfully obvious for you, just two observations from these two verses. Two observations, and then three implications. So, two observations from these verses, and then three concluding implications that come 
to bear on our lives this morning. There is much more that could be said, but I trust this will be with the intention of Matthew under the direction of the Spirit as he gave it. So let's read it again. Verses 5 and verse 6. Let's read these two verses and prepare ourselves for what they reveal to us. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. It's a stunning statement. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So two observations, three implications. Then we'll remember the sacrifice that made us even capable of understanding this text this morning. Observation number one from verses five and six. Jesus is utterly undivided from his people. Observation number one, Jesus is utterly undivided from his people. In other words, there is, there is no potential, no valid potential for you and for me to in any way categorize people as being something underneath of or separate or beside Jesus. He is inseparably linked to his people. That has everything to do with the way we relate to one another. And that's exactly what Jesus is bringing to bear on us in verses 5 and 6. Jesus is utterly undivided from his people. Notice at the beginning of verse 5 we have the word whoever, which draws our eyes. If you have pages like mine, it's parallel to the whoever of verse 4. Jesus is still talking to the disciples. And yet he uses a broad term, whoever does these things in relationship to my people is doing them in relationship to me. Notice the other clue for this observation in verse number five. It is the one who receives in my name that receives Jesus. Now that's that's interesting. We pray in Jesus name. We can also receive others in Jesus name. What does that mean? Um, as far as I know, we haven't adopted this as something like we throw on the end of everything we say when we welcome each other, like we do prayer. Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we don't say, good to see you in Jesus' name, amen. We don't ever say that. And yet that's exactly the same reality that's being highlighted here by Matthew. Jesus tells the disciples that there is a reception that can be marked as in his name. That is, according to his character, his priorities, based upon his person. So in other words, there can be a reception of others that is entirely based on Jesus, that is as connected to him as you can be. Every opportunity that we have to relate to other believers for the sole purpose of who they are in Christ is an opportunity for us to receive them in his name. We'll talk about the implications of that in just a minute. But for now, let's be reminded that Jesus is utterly undivided from his people. Turn back a few pages to chapter 10. Let's go back. Let's review a little bit in Matthew chapter 10. This is the kingdom mission. And these are the first kingdom missionaries going out. Jesus called the disciples to pray for harvesters to be sent into the field. And then he 
immediately tells them that they are the they are the answers to their prayer, at least the first of the answers to their prayer. And he sends them out into the communities surrounding the area of Galilee to spread the good news of the coming of the Messiah. Notice in verse number 23 and verse 24 what Jesus tells them. When they persecute you in one town, obviously the implication here is they will. So when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now notice the encouragement that follows on such a bleak outlook for the disciples. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Now why is he using this play on words? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, if they called me Satan, expect to be treated similarly. Why? Because you and I are one and the same. We are utterly undivided in our unity. And they're to be encouraged by that, as should we. When we are maligned for the gospel's sake, when we are criticized for the gospel's sake, when we are derided and mocked for our commitment to Jesus Christ and the implications that that commitment has on our lives. We stand with Christ. We enjoy the fellowship of Christ. He is undivided from us. The later part of this chapter, Jesus comes back to this theme. And he says in verse number 40, at the very conclusion of chapter 10, whoever receives you, receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward and the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple truly i say to you he will by no means lose his reward jesus has already communicated this intimate union with his people and he highlights it again for the disciples with grave gospel implications in chapter 18 and verse 5 and verse 6 i want to show you this from another gospel account let's go to john chapter 17 and let's notice what the apostle john records for us in chapter 17 jesus is praying his high priestly prayer this is one of the if not the most famous prayer of Christ behind the disciples' prayer where he taught them to pray, which is familiar as the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is when he prayed. And this is how he prayed. Notice what he asks of the Father in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is the twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. And that's me. That they may all be one. What kind of unity is supposed to be represented within the body? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you've sent me. So the people of God are intended to be so intricately unified. That it is a, it is a Trinitarian unity that marks the people of God. They are unified with Christ. 
Christ is unified with the Father, and therefore they, being the people of God, are unified with us, Jesus says. And why is this unity so critical? Because it is this unity that will cause the world to see that Christ was in fact the Messiah. Jesus is utterly undivided from his people. Notice what he goes on to say in this prayer. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and they become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see this? Jesus just goes back and forth and around and around, and this is the way John records anyway. Jesus consistently going in this circle of saying, Father, I pray for unity to be a reality amongst my people because I'm unified to them and I'm unified to you and they're unified in us. So there's no disconnection. We cannot categorize people within the family of Christ, those who are true followers of Christ, saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. We cannot in any way relate to them as if we are not relating to Jesus. Now, that's a stunning concept. You see, a professing believer's relationship to Christ's people is evidence of his relationship to Christ. In other words, the faith and humility that mark the inside have an external proof. They have fruit, and it is bound up in the relationship of Christians to one another. So back to Matthew chapter 18. Observation number one. Jesus is utterly undivided from his people. Observation number two. Your relationship to Jesus' people is undivided from your relationship to him. So let's turn the corner just a hair more personal. Your or our relationship to the people of Christ, therefore, is directly connected to our relationship to Christ. So it is impossible to say, I have a healthy relationship with Christ if you have an unhealthy relationship with Christ's people. It's impossible. It is not feasible that you can be growing in a vibrant relationship with Christ while you are not growing in a vibrant relationship with His people. And that, that's what Jesus says. I responded to some email last week um, because I put something on the internet from verse 3 of chapter 18, where he says, unless you turn and become a child, and I said, if you come as a, an adult, you go to hell. Somebody said, I don't understand what you're trying to say. I'm not. I'm just flipping around the same statement that Jesus has made. This is what Jesus says in verse 3, and now this is what Jesus says in verse 5 and 6. Our relationship to the people of Christ is utterly undivided from our relationship to Christ. Notice what we find in verse number 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Let's pause there. The reception of the followers of Christ in the name of Christ is equal to receiving 
Christ. Now we get we have a number of hang-ups when we study our Bible, right? And one of them is colloquial Christian lingo. And this is where colloquial Christian lingo runs into the fan. Because when we talk about receiving Jesus, for most of us who have grown up in this generation of evangelicalism, receiving Jesus is paramount to praying a prayer, raising your hand, walking an aisle, signing a card, whatever. It's you receive Jesus. And you could say, when did you receive Jesus? The idea loses all of its implication in this kind of a context if we have only that perspective and we read that perspective into the word receive. What's going on here is no different than what was going on in chapter 10. Receiving is the hospitality, the welcoming of another. This is the open arm, open door, come on in welcoming of other believers. This is something much more than receiving as in Hey, there you are. (laughs) Like, we didn't receive each other because we were sitting in the green chairs together. Now, we might. We might have received each other. Because we've welcomed one another, potentially already this morning, with open hearts and with open arms, simply because we're in Christ. And we know that the person near us is also in Christ. If so, we've lived out and applied the reception of God's people. So, don't miss the idea That Jesus presents to the disciples. It's hospitality. It's affection and care. This is, again, this is not a foreign concept. In John chapter 13, you don't need to turn there. Let me just read it to you. John 13, the context is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Showing them what humble love in the kingdom looks like. As he washes their feet. And he says this in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me, the one who sent me. So there is an open arm connection point to the way you respond to other believers, the way I respond to the believers around me and my relationship to Christ and ultimately then my relationship to the father. You see, you and I don't have a relationship to the father other than enemy condemned to die if it weren't for Christ. So if Christ is mediating between us, then everything we do toward the body of Christ has direct implication on our relationship to Christ, which has direct implication on our relationship to the Father. So observation one, Jesus is utterly undivided from his people. And observation number two, therefore, our relationship to Christ's people is undivided from our relationship to him. Notice the negative in verse six. But in contrast to verse five, whoever causes one of these little ones, same picture, same child, Representing the disciples who are a part of the kingdom, the kingdom citizens who are humbled. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, there's the defining quality. The children of the kingdom, that's all of us who are in Christ. Whoever causes one of these to sin. Literally, the Greek word is to stumble. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened about his neck. Maybe drown in the depths of the sea. The idea here is a contrast. So the parallels and the contrast in these two verses help us understand what it means when Jesus says causes to stumble. On the one hand, you have believers who respond with open, hospitable reception of other believers. And in the contrast of verse 6, we have those who cause disciples of Jesus to stumble in their pursuit of Christ, in their following of Christ. 
And the contrast would be by rejecting them. By distinguishing amongst which of the Christians I will receive and which ones I will not receive. And the ones who are not received, who are rejected, who do not receive hospitality, who do not receive from us an open welcome, are presented with a stumbling block to their discipleship. Because this is outside the bounds of gospel living. Those who are marked by faith, those who are marked by humility, therefore live out reception to all of God's people. Because reception of God's people is reception of Christ. This is no mystery. The one who gives cold water to the disciple gives cold water to Christ. And Christ will say, you clothed me when I was naked. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. You gave me food when I was hungry. You took me in in hospitality when I was a stranger. And they'll say, we don't understand. We, we've never seen you until now at the judgment. And he'll say, oh, you did it every time. Every time you did this with one of these ones. So Jesus is under, utterly undivided from his people. And therefore, our relationship to the people of Christ is undivided from our relationship to Christ. It's a marker. It's an evidence. This heart lived out in relationships is evidence of the gospel living in us. Now, we can't go past anything here without noticing verse 6 and this violent picture that's put at the end. It would be better, and the idea here is it would be better to have the second part of the verse than to live out the first part. Okay? So that's the idea here. You have a follower of Christ who has the potential to reject another follower of Christ. And if, if the option of, of the consequences of rejecting a follower of Christ were held up against tying a big stone around their neck and throwing them in the water, this would be the better option. You see that? So if the alternatives are, what are the consequences for rejecting one of Christ's people? Hell, eternal damnation, because it marks you as not having Christ within you and not living with life from Christ. So that alternative is presented similarly in the next verses, chopping off hands, plucking out eyes, all of the dramatic, violent pictures that are used to say the consequences of rejecting the people of Christ compared to having a big old grinding stone tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea. If you're going to weigh those two out, take the stone around the neck. I mean, if we don't get the seriousness of what Jesus is telling the disciples from that picture, then we desperately need to examine our hearts. A millstone was not a grinding stone. This isn't like a Houdini trick where you get the millstone off. This was a stone that was pulled by donkeys. And they would twist this thing around and grind up massive amounts of grain. So go ahead and tie the chain on and put that stone around your neck and be thrown into the deep sea. The idea here is immediate physical death would be better than for you to live out the first part of verse number six and cause one of the little ones who believe in Christ to stumble sin. To be stumbling in their course. So, a professing believer's relationship to Christ's people is evidence of their relationship to Jesus Christ. And that's seen in these two observations. He's utterly undivided from his people, and therefore our relationship to his people is utterly undivided from him. 
Now, three implications from these two verses. Just three of, no doubt, countless implications. Number one, discrimination is absolutely anti-gospel in the life of the church. Discrimination amongst the people of Christ is anti-gospel in the life of the church. If you'd like to examine that implication, James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 provides you with that picture. And in James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13, the most familiar way of distinguishing and discriminating is used. Money. You see, if your reception of individuals within the church is related directly to some other reason for receiving them, besides the name of Jesus that they wear on their jersey, then you are fundamentally living in an anti-gospel way. So if you withhold reception from some, either indifferently by not pursuing them, or actually overtly as they pursue you, you resist them because of some other reason, whether it be their social class within our American culture, whether it be their their gender within our culture. So I, I, I don't relate to anybody who's not in my situation, whether it be stage of life. Whatever the distinction is, discrimination in reception of the people of Christ is anti-gospel. And it must be seen as such at Grace Church. And our conscience as a church must be awakened to this. If there are people within our midst who are not received because they look a certain way, act a certain way, or I just think they would act a certain way because of what they look like or because of what I know about their past, we are relating not in the gospel, but in our flesh. And that's wicked. And it's anti-gospel. It flies in the face of why Christ saved us. To be one as he and the Father are one. And in being one, we're one with him and we're one with the Father. And we make evident in our unity that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. The one who provides this kind of radical change of life. This kind of radical perspective altering change. Number two implication. Hospitality for the sake of Christ is an evidence of Christian life. That is, life within. Hospitality for the sake of Christ. Opening your life for the sake of Christ with the people of Christ and with those who are not the people of Christ. Hospitality in your scriptures and particularly hospitality with those who are within the body of Christ is an evidence of Christian life. Again, if you'd like to study Romans chapter 12, the second half of the chapter, particularly verse number 13, commands us to seek to show hospitality. So when we come to texts that tell us Jesus is undivided from his people, and therefore we in our relationships to his people are undivided from our relationship with him in those moments, one of the implications is I cannot discriminate amongst the people of God who I like and who I'm willing to serve and who I'm going to open my arms to. I mean, I can't say, listen, I would love to connect, but you sit on the west side of the little theater, okay? I mean, come on. You're pushing me outside of my box here. Um, 
we're culturally different. You sit over there and I sit over here. We, we can't do that. We can't do that on any level. And secondly, when we don't do that and when we live out hospitality without discrimination toward the people of Christ because they're in Christ and in his name, then we actually put on display life from the inside. So what's on the inside gets shown on the outside when we're hospitable. That's what we're commanded to do as a result of the gospel's work in us, Romans chapter 12. Number three implication, final implication. When we gather together, we will have our most public display of these realities. So, discrimination is absolutely anti-gospel at Grace Church. Hospitality is entirely pro-gospel, fruit of gospel, within our midst at Grace Church. And when Grace Church gathers, we will face our most public display of whether or not the gospel is informing us in our lifestyle. Let me remind you of what it tells us in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, about the very first church in Jerusalem. Do you remember this? Do you remember this account? It's one of those ones that we kind of know about, but we don't really want to read it too much because if we start living by that standard, who knows what will happen. Potentially the world will be turned upside down for the gospel. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here is the first church exemplifying this kind of unity. This reception of one another in the name of Christ, which levels the playing field. I remember as an athlete in high school, particularly in soccer season, if we were playing a team that was way better than us, okay, and let's just face it, we might not say it in the moment, but we know when the team's better than us. So when the team was way better than us, we hoped that it rained. We really hoped that it rained. And I mean, I want it to rain buckets. Why? Because when you play soccer and it pours rain, it is the great neutralizer. It equalizes everybody. Nobody can run without falling down. Nobody can have particular skill in dribbling the ball. Everybody's on the same playing field. All of a sudden, skill really goes out the window, and it's just who can splash forward long enough to get to the goal and score. And you get a, an enormous opportunity to win a game that you wouldn't otherwise have. When the gospel comes to bear on us, and, and the, the unity of Jesus Christ and receiving others in his name comes to bear on us, it, it levels the playing field. All other distinctions within our normal society and culture are, are thrown out. And now we receive one another in his name and it's, and it's receiving him. And now to stand in the way of one another is to stand in his way and to be an offense to him. So the early church shows us what it looks like. And then turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11 and let's see what it doesn't look like. Let's see the negative example of the Corinthian believers. We've spent a lot of time with Peter who we tease has that foot-shaped mouth. 
Well, Corinth is our place to go find out what an unhealthy church looks like. Um, Also where we find out what the apostles reveal about what a healthy church should look like. But here we find a sad situation. Public gatherings at Grace Church will be the most public display of whether or not the gospel is having effect on us. The patio in here, Grace Group, T2, dinner with couples from here, whatever the case, when we publicly gather together, we will have the most public display of what's going on. And that's exactly what happened in Corinth. Notice what Paul says in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. This is powerful stuff. Paul goes on to talk about the Lord's table, which we're about to celebrate together. And he says... In verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So we have destitute and excess represented. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here in Corinth we have revealed for us what it looks like when a church is not living with the gospel coming to bear on their reception of the people of Christ. Selfishness reigns. Fighting and factions crop up at every turn. And ultimately, there's a dishonor that comes not just to the church family, but to the name of Christ that is so connected to the people of Christ. His cross looks like a joke. His empty tomb is laughable when the church does not live with gospel implications in its relationship to one another. Professing believers' relationship to Christ's people is evidence of their relationship to Jesus Christ. Say, what are the fruits that Christ is at work in me? Do you love His people because they're His people? Or do you love his people because they're his people who have everything in common with you? Indiscriminate. Hospitality will be a defining mark of the kingdom citizens within Christ's powerful reign. Father, thank you for Matthew chapter 18. These two simple verses. Thank you for the brief study. And the power that your word has in our lives to call us to radical change. I pray that you would use our time now of remembrance to drive home what we've studied. May we be careful. May we examine ourselves. May we be humbled before you as we prayed in our beginning to submit under your word, to not fight against it, to not be prone to anger or talking back, but humbly submit ourselves knowing that the discipline that you impose upon us as your people is love in discipline. It is not your wrath which was poured out on your Son. So change us now, discipline us, convict and conform us so that we might bring you glory as we live life together here at Grace Church. And we'll give you praise 
It will be all for your glory. It will be all your work. It will make you evident. That's our heart's desire. So we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.